Mobile workforces, cloud applications, and digitalization are changing every aspect of the modern enterprise. And with radical transformation come new business risks. Welcome to Hybrid Identity Protection, the premier podcast for cybersecurity pros charged with defending hybrid identity environments. Presented by Semperis, the pioneers of identity-driven cyber resilience for the hybrid enterprise. And now, here's your host, 15-time Microsoft MVP and Active Directory security expert, Sean Duby. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to the HIP podcast. We've been sharing panel discussions from our recent HIP Europe event. This week's episode will focus on the future of identity, hosted by my colleague, Gil Kirkpatrick. After listening to this episode, be sure to head over to hipconf.com to watch the conference sessions on demand. Enjoy. Everybody, thanks for joining us for the second panel discussion. My name's uh, Gil Kirkpatrick. I'm the chief architect at Sempris. I'll be the panel moderator today. And uh, let me quickly introduce our, or actually have our panelists introduce themselves. John, welcome. Oh, thank you, Gil. Um, so I'm John Craddock, and uh, I've been working in the identity space for many, many years now and getting very excited about uh, decentralized identity, self-sovereign identity, and verifiable claims. Excellent. Thanks. Uh, Ulf, welcome. Thank you. Um, yeah, Ulf Simon Wittner from Computer Center, working with Active Directory since 98. Uh, the NT5 preview and always stuck to the directory technologies and moved them over with the cloud as soon as we got our first trips on BPOS, which was like 10 years ago, something. Outstanding. And Pam, welcome to the panel. Hi, I'm Pam Dingle. I'm the director of identity standards at Microsoft, which means we work in the different standards bodies to do decentralized identity, single sign-on, cross-domain identity management, and lots of other fun stuff. And I've been in an identity now since... I think my first directory course was in 1999. And uh, my partner in crime and your host for uh, the HIP conference, Guido Grillenmeyer. Great to be on this panel with everyone. And and Pam, I was just thinking my first directory course was also 99. Yeah. So let's not count NT directories, but AD stuff. Yeah. And that started 99. So uh, I think we've all been going on with AD and everything that came since then. So the topic for today is the future of identity and maybe more specifically the idea of verifiable credentials and and distributed and decentralized identity. So John, let me start with you and why don't you give us a quick overview of what that means and then we can start the discussion. Okay, so the idea is that um, we can have self-sovereign identity through the use of DIDs. So rather than having usernames and passwords, um, what happens is we actually create a, we're going to a particular relying party, we create a public-private key pair. And that public-private key pair, well, the private key remains in a wallet with the holder. And that never, ever leaves the wallet. Right. And then what we do is we can create a signed message, which we send across to the relying party. Right. So that actually then allows us to send that message to the relying party. The relying party can verify it. It has to get hold of the public key to do that. I'll come to that in one second. Um, but what it means is that if someone signs a message and the message arrives at the relying party, there's two things that are proofs there. Number one, the message hasn't been tampered with. And number two, the signer of the message is in possession of the private key. 
So mm -hmm. if that user came back, we'd know it is exactly the same user. Now, how do they get the public key? Well, that's the, the where decentralized identity or DIDs come in, decentralized identifiers and the public key, um, along with some other pertinent data, can be stored on some form of decentralized ledger technology. So decentralized ledger means there's no central administration and therefore you know, there's no one who can take control of that identity. And then to make it really powerful, we bolt on verifiable credentials. So an issuer will, so if you think about the subject is the person who generates the private, um, public private keeper and the verifiable credentials can be bolted or bound to that identity. And those verifiable credentials are issued by a trusted issuer. And what we're looking there at trusted issuers is government authorities. There'll be certain companies that become trusted issuers. Um, you know, a college would be a trusted issuer of diplomas, right? Um, and so on. So what it means is we can turn up at the door with an identity that we created, we own, we published onto a decentralized ledger no one can take it away from us and we've got credentials that prove what we are so rather than being obsessed with usernames and passwords and you know all the horrors that go with that we've now gone and we presented what we are through these verifiable credentials so potentially it's extremely powerful so in, in a lot of ways sort of the transactional nature of of this approach sounds a lot like fido2 to me um is, is there a relationship between the two or how do they fit together and I don't know, do you want to answer that, Pam, as the standards? <laughs> I've got my opinion, but I think Pam would be a great person to answer that one. Yeah, they, they have a lot in common um, in that they're both public key transactions, right? Mm -hmm. um, but they have different properties associated with them. So um, with FIDO, one of the, the main ideas of FIDO is the binding of uh, a you know, a bound key in a stored in a place that's secure and a user gesture, right? So those mm -hmm. two things work together. You, you perform the user gesture and that unlocks uh, a public key crypto cryptographic assertion process, right? That's what FIDO does. With the decentralized identity, as John very accurately said, it's about discovery of an identifier. And so the, the idea that you can go to a, um, a blockchain or a, a a place that can't be disintermediated and learn where to get those public keys, that's the decentralized piece. So in some sense, decentralized uh, identity is about public, it isn't only, but you know, one of the unique properties of decentralized identity is that um, you can, that an individual can publicly announce a cryptographic key. With FIDO, it's a secret. So the public key is never made public. Yeah, it's um, associated with the RP, the, the relying exactly. party. However, those two things do compose in theory, but right now they're implicitly composed, meaning there's no cryptographic chain, for example, between a FIDO user gesture and a decentralized request and response. Lots of us would like to see that. And that's something that is future work that we could all kind of agree is important. Yeah, it's, it's, it sounds like one of those better together kind of uh, situations yeah. with those two technologies. There's one particular aspect of FIDO2 that I think is uh, actually really important is the fact that uh, you've got origin in the transaction. So therefore, if a man in the middle, so if you've got the Microsoft login and someone, you know, microsoft.hacker.com sat in between, 
um, the, the 502 would fail or actually reject the request. Mm-hmm. And that, that actually is a very powerful component. John, from what you described, this, this sounds very oriented towards sort of public website consumer kinds of identity scenarios more so than enterprise scenarios. Can, can you say something about that? The thing is that there's been some, you know, there's over the years, and it is a long number of years now, there's been a huge discussion of, you know, DIDs and VCs, and it's gone through. There are standards that are forming now. Um, There's nothing to stop you using a verifiable credential to prove who you are to an enterprise system. And um, just, just as a matter of interest, and I'm not saying this is the right way to go, but if you imagine you turn up with a verifiable credential, do we need to know anything about you? Do we need to have you in our accounts database? So you can come along with a verifiable credential. It proves who you are. You've got these particular credentials, or if you like, attributes, and we allow you access. Right? But we don't actually have an account for you, which would be very interesting if you want very high scalable um, B2C situations. Now, I'm not saying that's the way to go, but it's a possibility. The possibilities with this technology are endless. And that's why I was trying to encourage people in the keynote, get involved, start using the mic. I mean, the thing about, I mean, I said in the keynote, it's a dawn of a new era, but I think it's a dawn of a new era, not because it's new, the technology has been around for a while. It's what Microsoft have done by doing the verifiable claim service in Azure AD. They brought it mainstream. It means everyone can actually start building and building verifiable claims and showing them around the company. You know, I mean, I know Guido is- That's what we've been doing, eh? And you've been been showing it to everyone. So, yeah. let, so, let me ask a question on that, though. Uh, I think I think just what you uh, explained, John, just now, and, and Pam, the question is probably also more towards you. Uh, I, 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 um, what you've explained regarding the capability, of course, to taking those claims and then prove. Hello, Ben. Great to have you on here as well. Uh, to then prove to to um, whatever verifier needs your claims. Um, to prove the credentials that you've that you've stored, yeah, in one way or another, as the holder, yeah, either in a published way or uh, uh, on your wallet, whatever, wherever you have that did. Where does standardization come in here? The question that I would have is my uh, wallet that that Microsoft has created with the Authenticator app and the uh, verifiable credentials that I hold here. Uh, how do we ensure compatibility with a verifier? that is potentially using claims from um, a different technology, still utilizing the standards of DITs, yeah? Uh, ben, welcome uh, welcome to the panel. Uh, let me just interrupt things here for a second and have you introduce yourself quickly. I'm a senior manager for Accenture Security and I've been uh, working mostly on Active Directory for part of my professional life since 2004. Great. Gil, you can't get Pam out of the question that I raised on the standards of using of using my verifiable credentials from Authenticator with. Ah, yes. I, I just know that banks in Germany uh, they're working on this. Commerce Bank, many other banks have joined the ID Union that is also working on a self-sovereign identity solution, also built on DID and whatnot. Yeah, so I, I think the question on compatibility will, you know, will be critical, right? I agree. So 
so keep in mind, there are two types of compatibility that we have mm -hmm. to talk about. We have to talk about syntactic compatibility and we have to talk about semantic compatibility. Syntactic compatibility means, uh, can I parse the thing? Can I validate the token? Can I negotiate with my partner as to mm -hmm. what the formats are going to look like so that my little packages, I mean, if you think of a verifiable credential or for that matter, any other identity token, like any assertion, such as an ID token um, from OpenID Connect, right? They're all basically envelopes with a payload, mm -hmm. right? And so the that whole sort of postal service question of can I deliver the envelope? Can I address the envelope, right? Can the envelope, you know, hold my stuff without everybody being able to read it? That's one piece. And that is pure standards. That is the work that we are doing now. And it's not perfect. I mean, we don't have a perfect, um, you know, there are options and there are competing standards because that's how we make standards in this world. Okay. But, yeah. you know, the, the more important thing is the syntactic compatibility. Um, this is not a new problem. Every single one of the people who are listening to this are dealing with this now, right? This is a problem with roles. It's a problem with groups. When I create a group called sales and then I send an assertion that says a user is part of the sales group, does it have a different interpretation in every single domain that I send that to, right? This is a problem we have not solved and it goes far, far beyond the syntactics <laughs> Of verifiable credentials, right? That's, that, Anyone that's who's done the actual word problem. That's right. I mean, so I would love the opinions of the rest of the group too on on how that you know how that um, semantic ability of coming to a common understanding of data of claims um, could could go forward. But yeah, this the syntactic stuff is mechanics. It's uh, thanks for that. First of all, yeah. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, um, I'm actually curious. Wouldn't it be a great time to uh, to use those technologies for those COVID vaccine uh, certificates or something? What everybody's now trying to solve somehow? It is. It would be. I mean, there's there's so many possibilities. You, you've just thought of one, but but again, what what I wanted to try and do is get people trying this stuff so they come up with their own ideas i mean we, we came up you know with the hip card another immediate thought of that would be you know at an exhibition where you go around and you get a card stamped to show that you went to each booth right how about doing that with a uh, with a vc and so at the end of the day you gather the fact this person's been to all the different booths and you get some other collateral from them such as their email address and and you know all of that gets captured for marketing purposes um and you know you could just you, the best thing is a large pint of beer right <laughs> and you sit in the pub well you can't maybe these days but you used to be able to sit in the pub and beer mats and then you draw all over the beer mats and you come yeah. up with all these great ideas. I would love to ask this group. So with that specific example, this is a, a good way to highlight the advantages of verifiable credentials. So all of us have probably done this, right? We've gone to a conference, we've gotten a little card and you get the stamps for every booth you go to. At the end of the day, you know, whatever, 10 different companies have scanned your data and you have no way to control that after the fact right? You have been entered into a database. You are not the subject. You are the object, right? You're just a row. So the advantage of verifiable credentials are 
in a perfect world and what we're driving towards is the idea that now you're a cryptographic participant in the interaction. So you, they negotiate uh, an assertion, right? A verifiable credential. They negotiate that credential through a single point that you, the user, control. And what you should be able to come out of that, you know, that interaction is you have a list of 10 different interactions you had with 10 different companies. You know the date that that happened and you have a receipt for what the promises are that have been made by those companies. So, you know, we're not quite there yet as far as actual uh, implementation, but imagine a case where you get a receipt that comes back that says, uh, you know, we have received your data. We promise we will delete it within 30 days, right? And we will not pass it to third parties. If, if just, just that alone, imagine having 10 promises that if you choose to, you can go back and you can enforce. Do folks here feel like that's a reasonable um, I, I think it's a great promise, and 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 you're, this is one of the core identity problems that we've been experiencing for thirty years, which is that once your data sort of leaves leaves you, it's not your data anymore. One of the problems I think is is if you consider all of the public facing websites and companies that you've interacted with over the year. You know, it's probably fifty, a hundred, something like that. We're now just putting the administrative and control burden on the user, which we're properly, that's where it should be. But I think we're, we're dumping a rather large, hairy problem on, a, on users who really don't want to be bothered with it. Um, and I, I don't see, at least in, in sort of the public facing, I deal with 100 websites a year kind of scenario. I don't see how we make that a simpler problem to manage. It's it's going to be like doing taxes. I mean, it's it's one of those things you have to do, and it just takes takes a day or two of of effort to uh, to manage. It might not be something for everybody because uh, yeah, it's yeah, it's technology. Um, I actually think that we all need to to do more on telling people how easy everything is if you're starting to use Authenticator and all those things connected to it. Because, um, for example, I didn't change my Amazon password for ages, which is totally insane. On the other hand, nobody's able to access my Amazon account without my phone and my authenticator in there. And I'm using authenticator like for everything in my life. So even my NAS system at home is uh, running via authenticator. My router is authenticating me if I'm coming from a different browser, stuff like this. And if we get people to understand that enhancing security eases their life by not needing to remember so many passwords anymore, yeah, I think that's the hook for, for the consumer end of things is getting rid of passwords. People are going to be real happy about that because yeah. they, they're already doing everything possible to minimize their the, the requirements of mem memorizing passwords. They either use the same password everywhere or they use trivial passwords or whatever it is that they can do to, to reduce the, uh, the mental effort. Let me change direction on the conversation a little bit. Ben, I want to direct this one to you. Yeah, we've, we've talked about sort of the consumer uh, public website uh, interaction, but how do VCs and, and DIDs work in, in an enterprise environment in, in your view? Where does this technology help 
enterprise scenarios. Yeah, I would just like to come back so to, to what we were okay. discussing just earlier for half a second. Can't remember who was talking about, you know, having everything with MFA on their phone and, you know, just going through their not their NAS, uh, going through Amazon and stuff like that. Um, I actually have, um, I had one issue with that is uh, one of my customers. So we, we were red teaming. So not part of my team was red teaming one of our customers. And um, the deal was we had to reach, let's say, the CEO's mailbox. And of course, one of the things is, um, well, you know, if you're reaching, trying to reach it from the outside, even if you have the password, most of the time MFA is enforced, right, when you're coming from the outside. And um, if we were trying to attempt, you know, to come outside from the outside, even though we had recovered the creds, um, we would have been detected because the phone would have pinged, of course. Um, the thing is, sometimes I think that some companies maybe don't enforce the right level of security because they want to have, you know, let's say a better user experience. And most of my customers don't think about enforcing MFA when you're on-prem. You know, it's like conditional access. When you're going through on-prem, then you're saying if you're on-prem or uh, if we know that you have whatever public IP, that you're from a known IP from home, then we're not going to enforce you with MFA. Well, what happened was we actually basically had access to a, to a test computer that was on the LAN. And uh, we just signed in with, uh, with the CEO's credentials and we were able to, to access his email because we didn't get prompted by MFA. So that was one of the major issues. It's, it's always basically trying to make sure that the person who's performing the action is really the, per the person who's supposed to perform the action. And on the other hand, you're supposed to have to deal with the user experience and not waste time for your users. I always get these complaints when we're working on different products with our customers, you know, oh, they're two more clicks or three more clicks or they're prompted again for their password. And it's not the same password as whatever. It makes things too complicated, you know. And companies are just trying to simplify things for the users, which I can really understand. But on the other side, this really gets us into a lot of trouble. Sometimes the example was for Office 365 and reaching the mailbox, of course, in, yep. in my scenario. So I, I don't know what could be the future, you know, to find the right level, maybe for VPs or for very important people, or I don't know, for critical stuff, you even have to enforce MFA, even if you're on-prem, basically there wouldn't be specific rule sets for those types of people. And they always have to, you know, double check in and make sure that they're really performing the actions. I'm not too much into why wouldn't you require MFA if you're within the company boundaries, because actually, if I configure MFA not to be bothered too often, if I can continuously work during the day, but uh, authenticate once in the morning or something like this, um, then everything is fine. And then I would be perfectly happy. And actually, I'm happy every time when I'm logging on into a different account and I'm asked to confirm this via authenticator because it's much faster than taking out my old password. I agree with you. The thing is, so I don't know for you guys, I work in France and I would say that 90% of the companies I work for, so banking, finance, insurance, anybody, everyone has the same rule set. On-prem means you're safe. Conditional access, don't basically ask for MFA when you're on-prem. Don't ask for it. And it's not, it's not something that we can really discuss. Every time we push for it, the answer is always you're going paranoid and there's no reason to enforce MFA when you're on-prem. We had a few customers who actually decided to define any network is not safe, even if it's on-premises. I understand that, uh, and uh, I agree with it. It's it's not easy, and then you you run into other issues. So Guido, you're you're from Germany, right? Um, do you want to talk us talk to us about the work council yeah. and stuff? So you're talking about, about MFA. We need a phone, right? Yeah, yeah. Not everybody yeah. in a company has a pro a professional phone. So the first thing is you're saying we want to enforce mm -hmm. MFA. Some people will say I don't have a professional phone. I only have a personal phone. 
So then you say, okay, we can push MFA or authenticator, whatever you want on your personal phone. And then people say, well, no, basically that's my personal belonging and there's no way you're going to push anything on my phone. It doesn't matter if it's MFA or using the, the Authenticate app, in our case, as a credential wallet. Yeah, there yep. will be some piece of software involved. Exactly. Issue a holder verifier yep. uh, model needs to be used by the end user. Yeah. So, of course, you've got that end user device challenge. Also, actually ensuring security of the end device. It'll need to be sure that the user has, of course, locked it down with either whatever complex key or, you know, face scan, whatnot, because of course, once this thing is holding my keys, and in my case, it is, of course, and the good news is that these keys are popping into our application already. But the point is, if somebody else takes my wallet, and that could be physical, Right. And my, my, my question is, uh, or my, my thought is, how easy is it to take it not physical, but basically attack that wallet? That'll, of course, be an uh, attack uh, surface or at least an attack target yeah, for attacks to reap the private key yeah, that is only uh, stored on that wallet. And I'm sure uh, everybody's thinking, how, how can that best be protected? But and, and maybe it's harder to attack every device than it is a, a central identity store like Active Directory or Azure AD, but it's still the individual is vulnerable. Ben, I have a question for you. Do, do, do you think something like, specifically with respect to the, the phone question, I don't want to have a professional phone and I don't want to install your software on my, yep. my own phone. Would a, a FIDO2 token be an approach to that? So same thing when you're, it all depends on the customer. So we had this issue for a customer. Um, I won't talk about the product, but basically we, we needed to roll out um, either something to the phone. So this is the issue we we're talking about, or we, we were thinking about the tokens. The tokens is always the same thing. People lose their tokens. <laughs> Seriously. Yep. No, I'm really serious about it. Oh, you're right. We're working COVID, right? So you're all working remotely. Some people are really far away. They're not, you know, close to the office. They're actually two, three hours out or even in a different state. If we're talking about the US or far away in France, um, it's a real nightmare for IT to start sending tokens all over the place. Plus, they have to make sure to have like second sets in case people lose them. Don't so forget that would be the fallback mechanism if you cannot use uh, an app. And I think the question was, uh, let's say, on the technical side a little bit to Pam, if I'm not mistaken, is this uh, is this something that that uh, you guys would, you know, from a from a from an enterprise management perspective, you've you've voiced your concerns, right? Yeah. But I, I'm curious if if Pam, from a from a solution perspective, sees a backup like a FIDO token as an as you know a good solution, or is there other solutions? Yeah, I mean, there are many solutions and not every solution is right for every customer and everyone has a different scenario. So for example, you might be running a call center where they, they you know, people literally can't bring a smartphone in. They're not allowed to bring either their smartphone or, or the corporate smartphone in, right? Um, so the real answer is there's no panacea here, but I, I cannot stress this enough. And you can consider this speaking as Microsoft, you can consider it speaking as me, and to everyone out there, y'all need to get your priorities in order here, all right? These attackers don't give a crap whether your users are, are have trouble losing their tokens, okay? They are coming in, they are, they are finding ways to get into your on-premises infrastructure, and then they are leveraging the fact 
that that some of you still have this crazy idea that just because the user is is present on premises that they should be trusted and they are breaching you and you know what getting breached is really complicated right it's really complicated and it's really expensive and it's really damaging and not only does it damage you as a company it damages your customers and your business model and i'm not saying it's not difficult to make these ha things happen i'm saying that the alternative is massively problematic and you know please don't take my word for it read those iocs right they are meant for identity vendors they're meant for identity professionals right this is not a case of of should you or should you not this is a case of you should you should do it now and if you don't you are you know like mfa literally is the easiest way to get a long way down the path to some basic security so there you go sorry uh, that was my my soapbox but <laughs> no um, i i heard about customers who, who were breached truly large corporations everybody in the world knows who were breached who tried a couple times to redo the environment but had to give up and had to accept that they have been breached and hoped that they are securing everything enough that whoever might have golden tickets or something is not able to use them again but they are unable, usually you know what, how it is with those golden ticket attacks or anything like this. You have to redo your whole enterprise. And if you're not able to do it whole from scratch, you, you, you are never sure if you're not. Once your, your enterprise is breached, your communications channels are compromised. You can't even talk about the attack, right? All the things you rely on every day to get business done are suspect. And yeah, the, that whole idea of evicting and then having to do a complete burn of your environment, it's real and it's painful. And costly and time consuming. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and costly yeah. Uh, without any effect maybe if you are not able to fix it. So you waste a couple millions of dollars and you can't do anything about it. I guess the question in this round is how could potentially the decentralized identifiers and verifiable credentials help in such scenarios to reduce the attack surface. Right. For, for me, it, it basically is, uh, compared to the Solarigate situation, at least part of it was, of course, stating that private key of, you know, certificate signing certificate or the Federation signing certificate between a Federation service and the other part in Azure AD that trusted it. Yeah, that can, of course, also happen if I if I steal a, a private key from an individual, but then it'll be only that individual. So I already have reduced impact, I would think. I'm not saying that uh, that uh, the individual uh, worth the same level of protection, but the point is, it is harder. It is definitely harder uh, to attack a company, a group, if you're ut utilizing decentralized identifiers. Uh, yeah, ex except depends on how far the penetration's gone, because if they've taken over a relying party and they replace the crypto libraries, um, they could just say, "Hey, that's a great, that's a great uh, signature on there. We accept it." And you could, you know, you could actually get in that way. But it depends yeah. on the depth, of, and it depends how secure you make your service. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, if 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 they're doing that, they're, you're pretty well screwed anyway. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> but people do do that. But, but Gita, that's an interesting, uh, if the attack surface is basically reduced to a collection of individual users rather than a single authentication service, 
like ADFS or any other federation provider. That does make attacking the organization much harder. Yeah, um, you, you really can only compromise the resources that that individual has access to, not, not the entire infrastructure, unless it happens to be an administrator. Well, yeah, and and <laughs> you'll walk up the chain, we all realize, but it is still, um, you're, you're, you're distributing your risk. Does it mean yeah. that you're also increasing the attack for the surface for the individual? That's difficult to measure. That's difficult to, to guess at this point. But I'm just thinking that um, you know uh, it's 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 a comparable challenge with uh, what we've just had with the Federation services, the Golden Sentinel attack, mm -hmm. whatever it'll be called here, uh, the Golden Golden VC attack. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, but it's it's something that that would of course uh, be um, harder to 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 at least uh, address to the masses, I would think. So what would be a good? This is this is for everybody to comment on. What would be a good sort of experiment for an enterprise IT group to organize using VCs for enterprise and corporate identity scenarios? What might be a good uh, Good something to try out. Going down that route, a lovely idea, and people have been doing it with sort of student cards, where you get your student card and it's a VC, and then you've got access to, um, you know, all the resources. The problem is, um, what we'd have to do is encourage Microsoft to develop maybe a, um, rather than the, you know, username and password to sign in, a, a workplace credential of some kind. So, because do you go to the IDP or do you go to the individual relying parties which are already federated with the IDP? I mean, I was thinking when Guido was talking and I, I agree that is if you're going to the IDP and proving yourself with a VC to the IDP, so with your, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, credential, your enterprise credential, uh, you've still got all the federation going on as well. So how much does that, you know, that's an interesting scenario to analyze in terms of reduction of attack surface. Well, the IDP is still is still vulnerable in that case, I, I would say, although it lets you experiment with the user interaction, right? It, it, it lets you see how your users acclimate to um, using Authenticator or whatever other scheme that you might have. So that, that might be valuable. Um, Pam? I was going to say, um, and this isn't like an official recommendation or anything, but um, the other thing that often happens is people feel like um, for lightweight resources, that it's a really painful to authenticate to the IDP. The other thing is you might have a really strong regime for managed devices, right? So imagine if you had a set of resources that you really didn't think were that where a managed device was not necessary right? Where you might want people to be able to use their personal devices to access those resources, right? So maybe lightweight training resources or help files or, um, you know, things that you don't necessarily want the public to be able to access, but would be actually pretty cool if your employees could on a Saturday morning, open up their personal iPad and just get to the training resources, right? You could use a, a VC really effectively there, you know, where they don't have to go through the corporate regime but where you've segmented the content for that to be okay. That would be one option. That makes sense. When, when I was living in Australia, I did some work with uh, the healthcare industry in terms of trying to develop authorization schemes that properly reflected the ownership of medical records. Because in Australia, medical records are actually 
they're sort of divided up into two categories. There's stuff that the patient owns about themselves, and then there's stuff that the uh, physician owns because it's content that they've essentially created in terms of, you know, diagnostic notes and things like that. It ended up being ridiculously complicated. Um, and, and what you just said touches on a problem that I don't, I, I haven't really thought about deeply in terms of verifiable credentials, which is what about data that's sort of jointly owned? Like, the fact that I worked at a particular company for a period of time is information that is attested by the company, I would say, but is something that I, as an employee, probably should have access to, to, to publicize, you know, as part of my resume. So, Pam, you've, you've probably been involved in discussions on, in, in that area. Where, have you made any progress in, in sort of getting underneath what the ownership model of some of this data is? This is the hardest problem in identity management, yep. right? Is provenance. <laughs> yep. um, I know it's an interesting question because in the decentralized world, there is a lot of interest in, and in some, some cases claims over um, what you could do to prove provenance, right? What you could do to eliminate fraud. Um, uh, so the, one of the examples that has been uh, talked about quite a lot is the idea that if, for example, the world press, if the photographers of the world could uh, essentially wrap their photography, right, at, at the time they produce it in an assertion that can be later checked, then you could imagine the case that, you know, a photo of a world event, a contentious photo uh, world event comes out. The original photographer immediately uh, essentially creates a, a claim, right, that says this is the original photograph. And then any subsequent photograph that comes out that alters that photograph can be compared against the original, right? That's that's the kind of provenance work that we see um, starting to evolve, and you know it's related to non-fungible tokens. So there is um, there is work that's going on there. Uh, the the tough part is just having wrapped it in an assertion doesn't mean that it will, can never be misclaimed. It only means that you have a route um, to challenge, right? There's a there's a repudiation option there, right? So it's it's an interesting one because. Uh, different folks will make different assumptions. What do you all think? I think it is the hardest problem in identity. It's not just provenance, but sorting through the the actual ownership aspect of it, because it's not, I own all my data and it's not my company owns all my data. You do the Venn diagram and there's some stuff that's jointly owned. And I haven't seen anything in the technology space that really accommodates that scenario very well. And there's probably social work that has to be done, social and legal work that has to be done in that area too. I mean, going back to the, the scenario that I mentioned, the, the fact that I worked at a particular company, whose information is that really? Who, who can verify it and, and, and who owns it? Who's, who's allowed to determine who, who gets to see it? It's, I don't think anybody's ever formally defined that. Your example, I think, is perfect. And let's say a real world example where it's also difficult to know how that information would then be used. Picture uh, mm -hmm. the situation that you've worked for the company, but you were fired because of misbehavior. How yeah. valid is that credential now? Yeah, for you, it might still be good. Yeah, but the company would like to take that away from you versus just switch the job uh, because it was time to move on, whatever. A normal exit, yeah, versus a being fired exit, yeah. So um, 
credentials would need to reflect that if you were to use them. It's similar like revocation. Yeah, it's your, you re revoke the rights, the claims, uh, and I'm sure that that is a challenge even without the example that we've that we've taken. Now, I cannot revoke a token that we've passed out here at the, at the HIP conference. Of course, we're happy for folks to keep them on the phone as a you know, uh, souvenir. Those are real world challenges that I think also need to be addressed. And I'm sure those are being talked about. And I just don't know maybe um, the solutions here. Yeah. Yeah, they have already been here in the past years. For example, for companies working together with customers and partners and everything, you also have to figure out not how to how to uh, do I protect my own data, but also how do I protect my data in a why way where i have company confidential but i also have a project confidential for example where the customer and uh, the and a subset of the company need to have access same goes for privacy data i had a discussion with some internal guy who was actually saying that he wants to protect like everything as company confidential and i asked him so what's what about like uh, how you say your loan sheet and he said, yeah, that's that's a very good example that it's being owned by the company. And I told him, no, because I, I have, I'm owning it as a person. I have to provide it to my bank if mm -hmm. I want to have a mortgage. I have to give it away as a proof that I'm able to afford some rent somewhere. So that's a personal document. And we always have to figure out the, the areas between personal within the company, with partners, stuff like this. And I think there's not enough guidance and not enough examples maybe out there to help us there so it might be actually a good a good idea to to get more guidance on those things and more ideas how to work across premises however you will point it yeah there's some very interesting work going on from Gil saying on guardianship as well mm -hmm. because if you think about it you know you've got a, a child with a, a digital identity and mm -hmm. therefore there will be a guardian that needs to maybe do something with that digital identity equally well when you go power of attorney you've got you've got the same issues to deal with so there's an awful lot of legal issues there's a lot awful lot of and and there is some pretty good work going on on, on guardianship um but uh yeah there's so many challenges and every time you ask one question there's a thousand more <laughs> so robert um robert mater in the in the chat uh had a question here or a point, I guess, which is who defines who must consent what and how to enforce these rights. And that's the, the notion of consent and, and delegating authority over a set of credentials is, maybe that's a good description of the problem that we're talking about is if I own uh, a certain set of credentials that I control, I also need the ability to grant consent for someone to use them and possibly delegate some some level of authority over them. And this was one of the problems that we were dealing with in the healthcare industry. Not an easy problem. It, it is really thorny. At the moment, the authenticator is fairly simplistic in terms of we present the whole card, but we should be able to, at some point, present selected uh, credentials from that card. Yep. And what we should be able to do also is not present the credential at all, but prove that we have it through zero knowledge proofs. Yep. So, you know, prove that we're over 18, over, you know, whatever, uh, without actually disclosing our date of birth or anything else. And zero, zero knowledge proofs are exceptionally powerful. Um, but, you know, this is the start. And, you know, look at the discussion we've had because it's become mainstream and you've been able to create your 
application and people are trying it. Something that the whole card is presented right now. I'm sure Pam is working on that, that it's uh, it's actually only the attribute that the verifier app is requesting because that's where we've done the mapping. That's why I thought that is the only thing that is actually being passed along. Yeah, yeah the, the, there, there's a small nuance here, which is that um, when a smaller amount is asked for, um, what happens today is that um, the relying party and the um, holder negotiate with each other and the holder can go back and get a new card from the issuer that has less data in it. Ah, so okay. we don't, what we don't have the ability to do is take a card with 10 credentials and, and magically obscure some of it. That's really what zero knowledge proofs does, but right. we do have the ability today to renegotiate what's in the card before we pass it along to the relying party. So it's, you know, it is, it is selective disclosure, but it is not cryptographic uh, minimal disclosure. Right, so there's a, mm -hmm. a small line to draw there, and, and and the same way that if you've got a if you've got a card, if you go to a new relying party and you generate yourself a new keypad to talk to that relying party with, um, yeah. you can go back and exchange the card, so you can change the subject within the card, but you have to go back to the verifiable credential service to do that, and the authenticator does that for you. Right, it does a card exchange. There's a good comment uh, that uh, just came in as sort of a use case, similar like you talked to in your keynote, um, uh, John, on the topic of revocation of your personal uh, uh, data or of your, your, your information, your, your identity from a central managed provider. If it is decentralized, uh, countries can also not take away your identity and your information easily, Richard. Uh, wrote about that, that, you know, there are states that uh, re uh, revoke your entire digital life. And, and in this case, they can't. Yeah. Yeah. So Pam, the, the going back to the sort of underlying standards and technology, the uh, ultimately, a lot of this data gets stored on a public blockchain, but it doesn't necessarily have to be the Bitcoin blockchain, it could be other blockchains as well, right? So the great thing about decentralized identifiers is that it's a, a standard and within the standard, you can declare different methods. So there, there are over 40 different did methods out there. The one that Microsoft uses is called ION and mm -hmm. it anchors off the Bitcoin blockchain, but it does not store personal data or even the final uh, document on the blockchain. All we do essentially is create an anchor point so that we can rep, we can publicly discover. Um, but okay. yeah, there's, you can pick your did, uh, you know, right now, Microsoft only supports one. Um, but that's, you know, that is our initial stance. You've got to start somewhere. Right. But ideally, you know, there are there are did methods that anchor off of Ethereum, did methods that anchor off of private blockchains, if you prefer blo private blockchains. So, yeah, there's and there are some that are just ephemeral. There's something called did key, for example, where the hash of your the, of the discovery document is is the identifier. So there's literally, you don't, you're not anchored in anything. Can you sort of outline what the different behaviors of those options might be? Why, why would I pick one over another? Yeah, and the, the big question is public discovery. Um, the second question is uh, independence over time. So the reason we chose the Bitcoin blockchain is because uh, it is the hardest one um, in general to compromise over time. So you have to worry about, uh, you know, you're trying to, we're trying to create a place where any individual can create a permanent asset that is immutable, right? So, you know, you want it to be um, 
free of where at all possible 51% attacks free of, um, you know, any kind of collusion that could come in and take away your, your agency. Uh, the hard part is all of them are subject to social engineering. Right. And that's, that's something that, that we can't necessarily easily get rid of. Um, but, but those are the kinds of decisions, right? If, if you want to be able to, the fact that the identity ever existed, you would want to choose a did method that isn't immutable on a blockchain, for example. Okay. So you said credentials aren't themselves stored on the blockchain, um, just, just sort of an anchor point is, but so where are those attributes actually stored? In the case of ION, the attributes are actually, um, you know, the did document is sort of the basically a, a JSON document that lists your public keys and some service mm -hmm. endpoints. So th those are stored in a place called IPFS. And you can kind of look at that up. It's a decentralized file storage mechanism. Um, so they, in what's called a, a sidechain, the protocol is called SideTree. Um, if you go directly in blockchain, it is possible to... Uh, uh, store your public key in blockchain with a reference in blockchain to a did document, but you can't possibly get. Um, and sorry, this is in the. I'm thinking about the Bitcoin blockchain. You can't get the did document into. You can't get that on chain. So that has to be stored off chain. But you can have the reference to it on chain. The pro the problem with putting things on. Um, you know, the Bitcoin blockchain is there's a, a definite bottleneck because mm -hmm. what you have is transactions that are mined and on average probability gives you a new block will be mined every 10 minutes, right? So, and there's no guarantee your transaction will appear mm -hmm. in that next mine block. And if you're dealing with masses of transactions that you want to get on, this is where SideTree comes in, where the transactions effectively get batch together and you then create it's a sort of merkle tree root of these transactions and you just store the merkle tree root uh which is a hash onto the onto the chain and then the block right of where the transactions are are effectively in a file which batches them together and that's stored on the interplanetary file system mm. so that's that's sort of you know approximately how it works <laughs> I just had a few remarks. Um, so it was for Pam, I guess, um, when you were saying that you guys were linked to uh, so Bitcoin blockchain and that for from your perspective, it was like, I wouldn't say the most effective, but the, the least uh, the least one to probably get compromised uh, with a 51 percent attack. But as we know, you know, the purpose of a blockchain was to be fully decentralized, of course. But because there's so much money into it, we know that a lot of miners in a lot of different countries have been, you know, gathering up, teaming up, et cetera. So we know that on Bitcoin, for example, it was mostly China, Russia, USA, were the three countries where we had the most percentage of, let's say, uh, hash power. And lately we have China um, that's given a ban, uh, temp well, probably temporary ban, I guess. And a lot of miners are fleeing out of, uh, out of China, which would then mean that other countries are probably getting more percentage with you know, the hash power and potentially maybe leading to 51%. I mean, if we look at the other blockchains, if you look at um, Ethereum Classic, uh, they, they got it three times. The 51% attack happened three times. On Ethereum, so ETH, I don't recall. I don't think it did. But for me, the, the, the idea of blockchain being fully decentralized isn't really what, what it is. It, it's not that decentralized. That was my perspective. That was just my point, just saying, yeah. pointing that out. 
And then the other one was having a private blockchain for me, then it loses the, the, you know, the potential interest of being a blockchain and being fully decentralized. If it's private, then what's, what's the difference than what we're currently doing today with our infrastructure that can be global or whatever within a company? Don't know what you guys think about that, but. I think the common example of, of use of a private blockchain has been supply chain. Yep. Where you have a, you know, you have a set of participants and they all want to collaborate, but they don't necessarily want the world at large. Essentially, all of us, we have to take bets, right? We have to put a, draw a line in the sand. And, um, you know, the great thing about DIDS is that, so what we did was architect what we call an overlay network, right? That's what SideTree is. So in theory, we can change what the overlay network steps over if we want to in the future. Now that's not an easy process. Like I'm not stating that that's an mm -hmm. abstraction layer that just happens with a snap. Right. Um, however, yeah, I, we, we have to react, right? We have to help users use the DIDs that are going to be safest for them over time. We have to deal with the fact that the crypto could get old and become compromisable. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's, there's a, a whole bunch of stuff, you know, we definitely don't get to make this decision and then call it done and checkmarked, you know, so it could very well be that. I think this has been an excellent discussion. I've, I've learned a lot. It's opened the minds. Yeah. Of, of, uh, I think everybody, sir, last, last comments that everybody wants to make. Yeah. And I actually, before we, we get last comments, I'd, I'd like to direct your thoughts towards maybe action items for, for people. Where do you go next with this new knowledge? What, you know, Clearly, we this this technology gives us a road to something better than what we have. What what are the first couple of steps along that road? I, I think Gita has been down that path, haven't you, Gita? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. More and more, it's coming in. You know, it's. I think it's it's getting something tangible in your hands that you can see and you can share within your organization. And and when I say share within your organization, I mean don't just share it in IT. You know, show the marketing department, show show the accounts department, show the legal department, and people's brains will just light up, you know, and ideas will soar. But get something tangible that you can actually, you know, start issuing verifiable credentials using the new service. Many companies are still relying on virtual events, so everybody can actually go to the departments who are organizing this and look how, um, if, if they can do something similar, it's a great idea. And this was quite easy now because you had like two tokens to take or two cards to get. Um, at other events, it might be a little bit more. It might be that you work together with sponsors or something like this, but it's a great example and it's not relying to corporate data and it's already handing out the idea to everyone. Yeah. Ben, do you have any thoughts about that? Um, my only thought, so it was to come back to, to Guido, uh, was actually when you were saying, you know, coming back to focus on the end user, on the customer, well, you as a person, uh, you know, we're trying to do everything in the business world today where we're trying to do everything user-centric, right? We're trying to get the focus on the user. The user is supposed to know what he's supposed to do. The user is supposed to protect whatever. And my only concern with this one is that we're in the IT world. We understand, or normally we should be understanding what we do and our responsibility to what we own. Um, if we start giving that out to everyone, we really have to have all the change management coming into it and, you know, getting people trained for the masses because in a company, it's not just about IT, right? It's also about all the people that actually run the company. Not all companies are IT companies. So the people need to understand how to use it and what actually could be a danger 
if they're not using them right. Yep. Uh, Pam? Uh, so I would say, you know, if you have an intern, right, or you have a hackathon, right, this is an interesting sort of world to put in front of people and just see where they go with it, right, um, without even limiting it. <laughs> I feel like I've established a brand here, which is just that um, if you have an administrator in your organization that's not using MFA, <laughs> we need to go fix that. I, like decentralized <laughs> identities are a 10th order problem compared to you having every admin um, using MFA based on risk, not perimeter. With you on that for sure. All right, I guess we will wrap it up today. Thank you everyone for joining us. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us on the Hybrid Identity Protection Podcast with Sean Duby. Be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. Visit hipconf.com, that's H-I-P-C-O-N-F.com to learn about upcoming events, view expert presentations, and take part in the conversation.